being able to see what a what a whole carrot looks like when you pull it out of the ground and it has the green tops and, you know, a student can realize like that those tops are edible and they smell like the carrot and they taste like the carrot. Um, there's just, it's such a rich educational opportunity. And those experiences, I, I really do think that, that children will carry what they've learned through, you know, farm to school in the classroom or the school garden or the cafeteria, they'll carry that with them into adulthood. And I, I think it really encourages this holistic, healthy, adventurous eating style. Welcome. Bienvenidos. En cuarentena me tachu. Vítame. Pégane gafti. Yaman. Welcome to Nourish by MN350. The podcast that features visionary leaders. We're creating the regenerative, inclusive, local food economy we need to meet the challenge of climate change. Hello and welcome back to Nourish by MN350. I'm your host, Sarah Riedel, Communications Manager for MN350 and MN350 Action, where we're working to end the pollution damaging our climate, speed the transition to clean food and energy, and create a just and healthy future for everyone across Minnesota, the homeland of the Anishinaabe, Dakota, and Ho-Chunk people. Today, I have with me Lisa Chu, lead organizer of MN350's food systems team, and Erin Drayling, MN350 volunteer, to talk about the role that schools play in building a more local, plant-rich, and equitable food system in Minnesota. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here as we dive into this special and super important topic today. Yeah, I am also super excited for us to talk about my conversation with Kate Siebold and Jody Grun. Kate is currently a regional marketing specialist with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, but also the former Minneapolis Public Schools Farm to School Coordinator. Jody Grun works with Compassionate Action for Animals as the Wholesome Minnesota Coordinator, where she works with Minnesota institutions to provide culinary resources for plant-based food options. They both work closely with schools across Minnesota and fill gaps in how schools can source from more local small farms and the kinds of menu options available to students. I feel we are lucky to have access to these two wonderful examples of what it looks like to embody eco-conscious values, which definitely shows in their work. These types of initiatives serves not only to improve nutrition of the foods they help to curate, but as well as sourcing foods locally, helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the process. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad that the two of you organized this conversation and brought up plant-rich eating, because as you know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the other areas that the food systems team is working on. Regenerative agriculture was the subject that sort of planted the seed for this podcast. So we've explored regenerative agriculture with many of our guests. We've also done a few episodes about food waste because globally, 8% of human-caused greenhouse gas emissions are coming from wasted food. And so that becomes a powerful lever in the fight to reduce emissions. We've also done several episodes on food policy, but plant-rich diets are the fourth area that the food system team works on. And this is the first time we're going to dig into this subject here on the podcast. We know that 
food system transformation is required if we are going to meet the Paris climate targets. And when it comes to reducing emissions from the food system, adopting plant-rich diets is an even more powerful lever than reducing, reducing food waste. The challenge is that the food we put on our plates feels like a very personal choice, but we know that the climate crisis will not be solved by ind individual actions alone. So while many people may be starting to make food choices based on the climate impacts of the food, the reality is that there are structural barriers to individuals who want to opt out of the industrial food system and its emissions heavy products, and that includes meat. And that is what today's guests are working on, creating new structures that make climate conscious food the default. That's a beautiful introduction, I just want to say. Um, and so my conversation um, with Kate and Jody um, began by asking how each of their programs began. Um, the first time I had heard about the Farm to School program was through Minneapolis's Food Council, Homegrown Food Council. And I know it had been going for a long time, and so I continued following it. Um, and so the Farm to School program helps partner local farms with school districts to access more nutrient-dense foods in their programs, um, while simultaneously lessening the carbon emissions caused by shipping those foods as seen in traditional food programs. Um, and like you say, it's a great structural solution because so often there's a handful of key decision makers that decide the food that gets sourced to farms. So this is a great piece um, and we'll listen to what Kate said. Sure, yeah. So um, Farm to School has been going on for well over a decade across the country and in states and communities in different, in different ways and, and shapes. Um, here in Minnesota, we have um, many, many school districts that are doing farm to school and it's continuing to grow, which is really exciting. And as a state right now with Minnesota Department of Agriculture and our partners at Minnesota Department of Education and Extension um, and many organizations, we're really working to build out a network of support to help more schools do farm to school programming um, and to help schools and farmers connect so that we can really build out um, this statewide structure for how students get to learn about and taste and experience local food um, so that they can carry that knowledge and those skills forward as they become future grocery shoppers and cooks and citizens. And so I like what she said about how this has been going on for over a decade. So this isn't new. Um, and I really like um, to highlight that our public schools are funded by local public dollars and schools are huge places where our kids get fed. So as we use our public dollars to pay for food, um, but when we choose to source food from our extractive or global or industrial food system, we're actually draining our local dollars from our local economy and our community um, towards farms and businesses that aren't local. So when, so when we want to not only invest in our public schools and the health and education of our children, but invest in our local agricultural communities, farm to school programs really change that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic example of how a system top to bottom systems change can be stepping, stepping stones for a more restorative locally sourced food system um, that we need today. We need yesterday, but maybe we can get it tomorrow if we start getting our act together. Um, and then to jump to Jody's introduction, um, Wholesome Minnesota began a bit more recently than the Farm to School program and with a much more um, down to earth origin story as Jody will share here. 
Wholesome Minnesota was actually started a few years back, but it was really volunteer driven. So there was a large group of us volunteers that got together and kind of focused on institutions where we thought we could make a change. So that might be someone's workplace, a school, their college. Um, for me, actually, what it was, was my children were young and um, starting to be in sports. And I noticed that the um, concession stands were <laughs> demonstrable, I would say, um, with regards to their offerings for students who were athletes. Um, if we're going to offer our children, you know, food to um, enhance their performance and do well in athletics, I don't understand, I didn't understand why, you know, blue and red slushies and Gatorade and um, beef hot dogs were being served to kind of give them energy. So one of the things I did as just a volunteer at that time is I took over a concession stand for just a little park and rec program or whatever, but just transferring, um, offering fruits free and water at a low cost and bumping up the cost of things like Gatorade. Um, and things that were more processed. Um, and I also made the hot dogs, veggie hot dogs, and no one noticed except for the vegetarians um, and the plant-based people who were grateful for an opportunity to have something to eat at those events. Um, so for me, it was started as just a mom and seeing um, the need for some change in kind of the environment that I lived in. And then other people were kind of doing this separate work, um, work streams on their own. Just last year, Wholesome Minnesota got some funding to be able to have a staff person come on. And I was lucky enough to be approached as um, someone who would get that opportunity. So um, that was in the middle of COVID. And we talked kind of about what our strategy might be, given the fact that so much was shut down. And one of the places we really recognized that really had the need and was still serving a lot of food was schools. So we really focused our efforts on schools. And the reason why that's so important to me is because this is such a, it's a win-win for everyone, not just students, but the overall sort of population. School food like they, they serve 7 billion meals a year. That was pre-COVID and maybe it's a little smaller now, but that's a giant amount. It's an enormous amount of food. And if we can impact, you know, we can impact the food system a lot um, by school foods. So it's a real win for students. Um, it's the environment, you know, it's a win for the environment, uh, student health and racial equity. So we can provide children with these, the access to these foods that align with their health values and future. And that's why it's really important to me. This is such an inspiring story, specifically how Jody and her fellow volunteers were faced with the multifaceted challenges COVID brought to the table, and she saw the opportunity to have a strategic impact within schools and park and recreation concessions. I mean, how genius, of course, offer healthier foods for cheaper and bump up the cost of the, the unhealthy foods and see what people really want to pay. This is a whirlwind of a story and the impact of the big picture thinking. We will definitely, they will definitely stick with me. Yeah. And talk about big picture. I mean, 7 billion meals a year. That's a lot of opportunity to have an impact beyond what any individual could do on their own. And a great illustration of why we need to be focusing on these structural changes. Yeah, that's so true. I also love this origin story of Wholesome Minnesota and how Jody found her role as the coordinator there um, just by how her kids were involved and she joined others to, to change what was going on around her, but in a small scale. I also asked Kate a similar question about whether some of the demand for 
um, the farm to school programs at different school districts is coming from the community or um, coming from inspirations within the schools to adopt these programs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think farm to school programs, how they get started in school districts can really vary. Um, you know, when I worked at Minneapolis Public Schools, our farm to school program was started within our culinary and wellness services department, championed by the food service director, Bertrand Weber, and the staff there, the team that I was a part of, really led farm to school in the district, starting in our cafeterias, but then thinking about how we grew it from the cafeteria then to school gardens and connecting with teachers. Um, in other districts though, it might start a different way and it might start with a teacher and a school garden and having that classroom connection. And then it's maybe tapping into the food service staff and bringing them into the mix to think about how they expand farm to school to the cafeteria. We, we really think of farm to school as the three C's, so classroom, community, and cafeteria. And I think there's examples across Minnesota and across the country of farm to school starting in one of those C's and, and, and kind of growing out. In some cases, it might be you know, a ship coordinator or a community partner who's working um, with a school district that can kind of help them get a foundation started for farm to school. And then again, they're bringing on um, additional people in the district to support it. Um, one strategy that we've really found to be successful though, is that a district that has a farm to school team with people coming at farm to school from different ways is the most successful. So right now we're piloting a harvest of the month program across the state at 15 schools. And that, that program will go statewide next year, but the, each of the pilot schools has a farm to school team that includes a food service professional, a teacher, a community partner, and two other people. And we found that system where you have someone coming from the classroom, the cafeteria, and the community is really the most sustainable way. And it, it shares, you know, shares the work of, of getting farm to school up and running. I love this idea of harvest of the month that Kate just spoke on, as well as the concept it involves individuals from different demographics working together in the structure of the program that fits their community's needs as a whole. Now there's proof that it's possible and work still needs to happen. So it will exist for future students and community members for years to come. So one of the next things I asked Jody about, something that was in the news in the last six months, I think, where Richfield Public Schools in Minnesota pledged to have 20% of its lunch menu plant-based by the end of 2024. Um, and Jody's organizing efforts through Wholesome Minnesota helped to make it happen. Um, so I asked her kind of how she made it happen and what it was like um, to achieve that amazing pledge from an entire public school district. Sure. Um, so my program, you know, we're real small and we're local here. And so one of my, my role is basically to build awareness for the um, forward food program. Um, so I actually go and kind of make the, the initial kind of calls and asks and try to connect with decision makers or parents or students to kind of get an invitation in and just share information. So I partner um, with larger organizations, larger national organizations like Forward Food, who have all of the resources. They've developed um, the culinary plans and recipes. They have trainings for staff. Um, they have marketing 
uh, programs. They also have like greenhouse gas emission assessments. They have all this stuff to offer. And so I'm sort of being an evangelist for a lot of their programming. So what I did with Richfield um, was basically just kind of cold called the, um, the director of culinary services there, nutrition services who ends up being a great, great, great human being who is open and innovative and um, came from a, a university setting. So I think he maybe felt like he had um, maybe a little more flexibility because I think university settings might have a little more flexibility than maybe some of the public schools had at the time. Um, so he was just willing to kind of jump on board and try it. He also had noticed that students were really asking for culturally appropriate options in schools. Our school food program doesn't often reflect the student population. And for him, it was really important seeing that a lot of uh, plant-based foods actually do reflect cultural traditions. Um, and it was super easy for him to implement those in his school. So we partnered, um, you know, he and I talked and um, got a good rapport and relationship. Forward Food came in and we all worked together and collaborated. And now um, he is offering plant-based um, in Richfield Public Schools. You know, although we've talked, we've kind of talked about schools as huge buyers of food, the piece that distinguishes them from grocery stores or restaurants is that they're also educating our children. You know, I have two kids, they're young, four and six, um, and they're growing up in a world with a rapidly changing climate. So I try to teach them through like gardening together and dinnertime discussions about where our food came from and whether or not it's what we've been calling a planet saving meal. <laughs> um, but with what I know about our food system and its connection to climate, I really think that an education about agriculture and food and sustainability is as important as math and reading. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, Sarah. What a thoughtful and powerful, intentional way to share meals together. I wish more families were so intentional and mindful with their nourishment habits. I, I too garden and feel that it's, it's a good way to connect not only with you, your food, but also with the earth and, and honor that the earth is what is nourishing you. Uh, so I asked both Kate and Jody about how they see their work shaping how our children interact with food, either while they're still in school or shaping children's lives um, after they leave school and what they think about um, after that. You know, I think that I see Farm to School as a really unique opportunity to provide students with this foundational understanding of like where their food comes from. And, you know, being able to see what a, what a whole carrot looks like when you pull it out of the ground and it has the green tops. And, you know, a student can realize like that those tops are edible and they smell like the carrot and they taste like the carrot. Um, there's just, it's such a rich educational opportunity and those experiences, I, I really do think that, that children will carry what they've learned through, you know, farm to school in the classroom or the school garden or the cafeteria. They'll carry that with them into adulthood. And I, I think it really encourages this holistic, healthy, adventurous eating style. You know, nothing, nothing happens overnight. It might take, you know, a kid 17 times before they decide they like farm to school beets or something. But I've seen, you know, when I, when I worked at Minneapolis Public Schools and I spent a lot of time in the lunchroom, I mean, there was nothing more fantastic than seeing a kindergartner 
crunch into a beauty heart radish for the first time. And, you know, maybe, maybe they didn't like it right away, but they tried it. And that was to me the most important part. And maybe they'll try it 17 times and decide that they like it. But just, you know, having that, I'm, I'm willing to try this. I want to learn about this food. Um, I think is so important as, as we grow up into adults. And I think as adults, we need to challenge ourselves to still have that same level of like adventuresomeness and an interest in our food and where it comes from. And so I just, I think farm to school is really this foundational piece. Um, and I think it also is really important for, you know, understanding why it's important to, to eat local food, to support local and regional farmers. When you have that connection, you're so much more likely you know, to, to shop locally, if you know that farmer where it's coming from, um, and to understand the values that, that local food systems have. Um, and we can start that at, you know, kindergarten or even in, in early childhood settings to, to help raise those, those future adults that will be shopping someday. Yeah, I agree with the, the curiosity piece of being willing to try new things. It's amazing. I, I was lucky enough to have a CSA share for quite a bit of this last year and like getting random things in there that you don't know what they are, but like you have to try them and maybe you try them enough, you'll start to like it, but sometimes not at first. Our, our modern grocery stores offer such a small variety of like the amazing, beautiful vegetables and produce and fruit that exist in the world. So it's amazing the farm school program can, can expand what, what ends up being served normally. Jody, what do you think about that question? Well, first, I love the way that Kate just expressed herself, and I just felt my heart just sing as she's like describing these beautiful foods. All food nerds here, I guess. Um, I love it. For Wholesome, what I'm recognizing, so we just started kind of going into classrooms um, this, this year as classrooms have opened up a little. And one of the things that I've recognized is, I mean, Recycling at Home got its start because kids came home with the recycling message and the adults had no opportunity to say no because the kids were relentless about it. And I think that's what food system work needs to kind of be about. And it probably does need to start a lot younger. I've been working with high school students recently and it's really interesting because if I go into a warm audience like a green team or an environmental club, those um, students are much more open to my message and are shocked actually, because they don't, I mean, they're already environmentally conscious, but they had no idea the impact of animal agriculture on our environment. Um, so those are always like, those are the classes where I feel these big wins. When I go into classes with students who are um, just more conventional student that maybe isn't thinking about these issues as often as maybe these other children. So there's a lot more education that has to be done. So that's where we need to really, really focus a lot of effort and energy is with our youth and them understanding, you know, the important for the importance for our environment, but also just health, you know, even just talking about processed and ultra processed foods, I think is really important because that's what they're eating. You know, I mean, if you look at what Americans are eating, it's like 68% processed food, 25% um, meat and dairy, and like, you know, uh, whatever's left 12% or something of plant foods. And that's just not enough. And that's why we're, you know, having all the, the health crisis that we're having. So I think kids haven't quite put that together yet. And I think it's our job as adults to bring this information to them and be, um, realistic and true and um, have them really truly understand that their choices really, really, really do matter. 
Yeah, I love all of what they talked about in this section from using early education as a foundation for building kids understanding of local food to the joy and curiosity of trying new foods and learning to cook um, to the impact that one plant rich meal a week can have towards a more sustainable and delicious future. Um, and it makes me wonder for you, Sarah, how much this resonates with you as a parent with kids in the Minneapolis Public School District and someone trying to raise kids to understand our food system and also not be picky eaters. Absolutely, it totally resonates. Um, like I said, my kids and I are kind of learning to garden together and it's so funny, they're always willing to try a new vegetable if it's picked straight off the plant. Um, they don't even question it. Um, I remember the first time I heard a three-year-old say, mmm, kale. <laughs> I was like, how many three-year-olds like kale? Um, but I think they sort of inherently appreciate it more when they have some understanding of how it grew and where it came from. Like, you know, when it doesn't just land on their plate without any context. It's harder to be a picky eater when your food has a story and you can see yourself as part of that story. My kids are still picky about some things, you know, because <laughs> kids are going to be kids. But I definitely agree with Jody that the younger we start teaching kids about their part in our food story, the better. Yeah, Sarah, I wish I had that growing up as a kid myself. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so much really resonated with me from Jody and Kate are doing in, in the schools and the food systems that they are part of. I love to see that bridge happening between, you know, where the food comes from and, and what is actually going into our systems and, and being digested. And a lot of, a lot of Americans are disconnected on where food comes from even and, and how it's processed and how we get it to our table. So the fact that they're focusing on teaching these young kids, you know, what this food is and what it means to eat local. And it's just such a beautiful thing. Um, and I, I hope to see a lot more of it in the future. So Lisa, Jody and Kate touched on some really deep values that drive their work, you know, sourcing local food, instilling food education in school curriculum, and then having equitable food sourcing to support it and community members using their power to get involved in culinary programs. But I have to say that all of this is so different from what I remember about school lunch programs when I was in school, it was a long time ago. But and obviously during the past two years, schools and teachers have taken on a lot of other things that we're still learning how to deal with. And that, you know, quite frankly, they can seem more, pre more pressing than say the carbon footprint of your sandwich. Um, so did you talk about what it takes to make this kind of shift? Yeah, absolutely. Despite these being great values, of course, there are lots of things that get in the way. Some of them is the challenges of network building. Um, although some of these small local food networks might have existed decades ago, but rebuilding them is something that's really challenging. Um, as well as, you know, like you said, educators and school people who work in schools are really overwhelmed right now because it's been so tough. So we'll get into all of these things coming up. With students, I think one of the things that we may not understand right now is we might think that a classroom is similar to what it was like when we went to school. And I know we all vary in age here, um, but it's a lot different. <laughs> 
And right now the teachers are struggling, the administration is struggling, the um, school nutrition professionals are struggling. You know, it's just, it's a hard time for everyone right now. And um, I think that ears aren't always open to new things right now because everyone's just trying to get by, including the students. You know, they might not even, they, they're not even thinking of this stuff right now. So um, I think as we get back into some sense of normalcy, maybe we'll be able to um, break some of the barriers. Um, but I actually had a couple quotes, like in terms of this whole like obstacles, which is I think really interesting because they show the difference in kind of directors approaches to this. So one nutrition director, so I did this, uh, did a talk with a uh, high school and they had actually written to the nutrition director and the superintendent asking for them to consider offering more plant-based options. And what they, what was returned to them was this, as you note, the pandemic has significantly impacted our food service operations for two years. Staff time and attention have been devoted to providing meals among learning model shifts, staffing shortages, supply chain disruptions, and unpredictable product avail availability. We anticipate that it will be at least, at least another year before we regain stability in food services. And that's really the reality of what I'm bumping up against. And I think it's the reality for a lot of people in school nutrition. However, at the same time, our partner, Michael Manning at Richfield said this, when we start looking at recipes, you, you realize that the products you need aren't the things that we've seen strains in supply chains with. Everyone's ordering chicken nuggets. When we're ordering chickpeas and some black beans, they're much easier to get. So it's whether it's when people shift their ideas of what school food can look like that I think that we can actually kind of get around some of the obstacles that are creating or have been created um, when we just think in these conventional ways. I'm just encouraging people to kind of think about plant-based as um, healthy options, but also potentially more shelf stable and things that they can have in their back pocket um, at any moment in time that when a delivery truck doesn't show up or something, they have something that, that they can serve the kids and they're not running out to Costco trying to get some chicken nuggets for, for the school or something. Jody touches on how in spite of the supply chain's disruptions because of COVID, her school is still able to hold up demand from the plant-rich diet options. It's so great to know that, you know, thinking on your feet and being creative can help nourish, but still help sustain in, in a pinch. Yeah, definitely. And Kate described similar challenges within the farm to school program, including things like staff capacity being constrained, um, small budgets and pandemic struggles, but she also shared about the solutions that an institution as large as the Minnesota Department of Agriculture is doing to support schools who take the leap into transitioning their food to more local sources. And honestly, one of my favorite things about food system solutions is that so often the solutions that are better for the climate and better for our community make things easier. So when we talk about supply chain constraints like beans and uh, chickpeas, there aren't supply chain constraints on this, at least not yet. Um, so switching to these things are both like a solution to this last year's problem and a solution to the decades long problem we've had with our food system. So let's hear from Kate next. Kate, can you share more about how farms apply to be part of the farm to school program? What kind of ways and, and um, versions the program has had to make it more equitable and improve 
over many versions. You know, how, how different districts go about sourcing local food for a farm to school program can really vary. Um, so for instance, when I worked at Minneapolis Public Schools, um, Minneapolis puts out a request for proposal and far, any farm is invited to submit a bid to sell product to the, to the school district. Um, in some smaller districts, it might be kind of more of an informal thing of, you know, reaching out to some farmers and saying like, hey, you know, what do you have available? And, you know, kind of figuring out if it's a good fit. So it just kind of depends on the size of the district and, and the, the area where they are. Some districts um, might work with a local food hub to um, have that food hub source product for them that they then deliver to the schools. Um, so it's, it's kind of just a matter of the district size and where they are and what kind of infrastructure supports there are. But I think, you know, my role at Minnesota Department of Agriculture is, you know, really focused on like, how do we help to bridge those connections between farms and schools? Um, because if you're a school food service director, you may be really used to, um, you know, working with big food companies and distributors, but you've maybe never worked directly with a farmer. And similarly, if you're a farmer who's used to selling at a farmer's market or through CSAs, you're maybe not used to working with school food service professionals. And I think there's, there's learning to be had on both sides of kind of what a successful relationship looks like between institutions and schools. Our, you know, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, Minnesota Department of Education, Extension, you know, all of our partners want to kind of help, help bridge those, those uh, those connections and help institutions and farmers feel prepared to enter into those relationships. You know, some of the barriers to farm to school, you know, touching on something Jody mentioned earlier is that school staff, teachers, including food service professionals have a million and one things to do. <laughs> and that's certainly been the case during COVID. And, you know, farm to school, it, it is, it's, it's something that you need to put some time into working on. And I think sometimes it's challenging when a food service director is already doing all these things to take the time to do farm to school. But, it, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of break down some of those concerns around time and, you know, what resources can we as a state make that help it make it easier. And then certainly equipment and infrastructure is a challenge too. You know, do schools have the equipment needed in their kitchens to be working with fresh produce and bringing in, you know, raw chicken or other things. And then as I mentioned, connections. So, you know, are, do you as a school food service director have a connection to a farm or someone to reach out to? Minnesota Department of Agriculture has a wholesale directory where schools can actually look up to see what farms in their area do wholesale. Um, and we're actually going to be launching a, kind of a revamp of that site soon. We're working to make it even more accessible. And then also funding is a concern. You know, school districts operate on a really small budget. I'm sure Jody can speak to that too. And as a, as a food service director who's planning a menu, you have to be really frugal with your, with your dollars. But, you know, I think there's a, a misconception that farm to school has to be more expensive. And that's not always the case. But we also do want to support districts in, you know, purchasing local, even if that maybe does mean a difference in price. And so one of the great things is that Minnesota Department of Agriculture has a farm to school reimbursement grant where schools can apply to get reimbursed a certain amount per meal for some of their local purchases for Minnesota farmers and producers. And so that's a, you know, just one way that we as a department are trying to break down some of those challenges and barriers to farms and schools uh, so that more schools can participate and be successful in, in buying local. Yeah, you covered so many different things. <laughs> um, 
Thanks for sharing that. There's a lot to farm to school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and especially as you've moved up, moved up a level to see the overview of all. I'm curious about the overlaps between the work that they do, like whether schools with comprehensive farm to school programs are more open to or like naturally transition to plant-based menu offerings or whether schools switching to plant-based options are curious about going one step beyond to sourcing locally. Yeah, I, I wondered that too. And so I also asked um, Kate about thinking about um, if farm to school programs made that good segue to plant-rich diets. And I think that's true when she talked about beets or radishes. And so we'll hear from her. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad to hear that they have, at least at a state level, recognized some of the barriers and have a reimbursement grant program in place for for uh, schools that want to do farm to school for their for their schools and don't see how they can offset the expense. But yeah, let's let's see what Kate has to say. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think it's really going to depend district by district. Um, I know when, you know, when I worked at Minneapolis Public Schools, um, there was interest in some plant-based meals. Um, and also just thinking about like when we, when we were buying protein, was it coming from a farm that was using, you know, sustainable practices and good animal welfare practices, and then also balancing out with animal or with plant-based protein. Um, other districts, you know, like like Richfield with, with that Jody's working with are really focused on the plant-based, um, you know, for our Harvest of the Month program that I mentioned earlier that we're, that we're going to be launching statewide soon. We do have beans as one of those 12 food options. We also have poultry, you know, we want to represent all, all producers in the state, but we know that that plant-based is a growing interest among many districts. And so we're really excited to have um, beans in there as a plant-based option. Um, for districts, but we're, we're learning that it's something that, you know, school districts haven't always done as much with, with plant-based menu options, right? And, you know, cooking, you know, dried beans rather than canned. And so we're, we're trying to provide, you know, training and information on how to, um, how to incorporate local beans and, and plant-based proteins into uh, farm-to-school menus in connection with Harvest of the Month. Our plant-rich diet episode is part of MN350's podcast called Nourish, and nutrition is such a big topic of discussion when reducing or removing animal-based foods from our diets. Busting the myth that every meal needs a meat dish, which is reinforced by the menus and the food options restaurants and establishments provide for their patrons. Yeah, I think that's so true that um, people are afraid to give up meat because they think it's not going to be as nutritious. But Jody's got a great explanation um, that she shares with uh, schools when she advocates for switching to plant-based. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm not a dietitian. 
Um, but I just share a love and passion for plant-based and I have found, and I've read a ton that plant-based works great for many, 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 many people. And you can get all your dietary needs, um, met on a plant-based diet. We in America believe we need so much protein. Um, and that's always like the biggest question when you talk to someone who's plant-based is, oh my gosh, where do you get your protein? And if you think about it and you think about the largest, strongest animals on earth, they're all herbivores, they're elephants rhinos, gorillas, etc. So clearly we can get our protein needs, needs met through plants. So we have menu items that are available um, to schools that um, meet all of the dietary guidelines um, that schools need to meet um, for providing a lunch to a student. They're all ready to go. Um, it's a turnkey program where literally you get menu items, um, you get menu support, you get marketing, um, support, like I mentioned, you get this greenhouse gas ass assessment so you can see where your menu was before and after you've implemented the program. Um, you also get to look at cost savings because actually there's this myth that plant-based eating is more expensive than more of a conventional American diet and that's just not true. Um, it might be true if you're eating a lot of ultra processed plant-based foods, which is not what we encourage. We encourage a whole food plant-based diet with the occasional, you know, like, I mean, a kid's gonna want to maybe have a hot dog or a burger or something. And those products do exist. Everything that you can think of um, that is like a meat product has now been, there's a plant-based version of it. It is ultra processed and it's more of a sometimes opportunity, I guess I would say, um, but nothing that we're, um, we're definitely saying should, should be something that people should eat every day. Um, but yes, you can get all of your nutritional needs met um, with a plant-based diet. We also are saying too that this is a choice and it's something that can be um, whatever choice you make matters. So if you said, and there's a lot of ways to approach it too. So if you said, I would like to just try going plant-based one meal a week or one day a week or on the weekends, and there's all these different support systems and networks um, for the individual or for an institution to approach. You know, there was a whole Meatless Monday thing. New York public schools have a vegan Friday now um, that they have implemented. Um, there's just lots of different ways to approach this and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So we're just looking at kind of the reduction and looking at if what reductions you can make that can make a big difference. Cause just, you know, one, you know, school districts doing one meal a week um, can is mega, like mega change potentially for carbon emissions. Jody's last point there um, that it doesn't have to be all or nothing is so important. You know, going back to a number that was mentioned earlier, 7 billion meals a year. So switching out one meal per week in school culinary programs is still over a billion meals that could support small local farmers and be better for our climate. Absolutely. And that's, that's why we invited them and we love the work they do. Um, and some of the work that they do kind of inspired the new campaign our MN350 Plant Rich Diets group is kicking off, um, which, we're, which is called Default Veg. So I like what she said about having the option or having it one day a week. And part of our default veg campaign is seeking to change um, the default food options to be vegetarian or vegan, while meat can still be an option or an addition to any dish, but it's not included by default into everything like we currently have. And so the idea of our default veg campaign that really resonates with me is that people who might be eating meat every day 
might accidentally eat a vegetarian meal and realize how delicious it can be and that they don't have to be putting in extra effort to try it or necessarily have to pass on something um, because the vegetarian option will just be there. Um, so having something like one day a week at a cafeteria that's plant-based really does give students the opportunity to try something um, that they might not have been given all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I love the fact that she says and pounds away at, at a point that it's a turnkey program. So you don't really have too much to say. Like, you, you, how can you say no to a turnkey program? They're already done the work for you. All you got to do is just tell your board or your committee, you know, that, that this is an option and let's let's give it a try. Because I don't think anyone should should argue at least for one one day a week. I mean, it's a no-brainer. I love that. And um, that actually reminds me that so many cities or maybe school districts right now are making climate action plans in order to make commitments on how to um, reduce their emissions, reduce their energy use, reduce all of these things um, in order to meet the climate goals we've set as a state, as a county, as a city or a school district. And so when you say turnkey, um, it really is a win-win. How can you say no to that? And it's something that you can implement that helps you meet goals that, that are being set at different levels of institutions or geographies. And um, to add on to the default veg framework or um, Jody's Wholesome Minnesota framework, is um, the idea about marketing and how we offer these new and slightly different food offerings. Um, and so she wanted to add some parts about the way we offer it and call it really does change um, people's perceptions of it and maybe how much they'll like it. So we'll hear from her next. Yeah. The one of the feedback or some of the feedback that I got from Richfield was he doesn't even market something as plant-based. He just says it's the ramen you know, and then at the end, he gives them a choice of like an impossible um, meatball or tofu, and the kids just take it. There's no questioning of where, where, where's the beef or where's the chicken or whatever. It's just, they, you know, they sort of accept it and then they love it and they don't even think that they're missing anything. And that's the other thing, like in terms of marketing terms, um, sometimes calling something vegetarian or vegan or plant-based or something um, makes people feel like they're missing out on something. You know, someone who is typically, you know, a carnivore or, you know, like eats a, a, a meat-rich diet. Um, but instead of just, instead we like to call things, you know, like speak in terms that make some food sound exciting. And I'm sure Kate, you do that as well with farm to school is, you know, it's the rainbow salad or the rainbow slaw, or, you know, making it sound exciting, not just say what it is make it into so like something that sounds beautiful, just like you were talking about the radishes early. I mean, some a way that you can like visually see this food and understand that like, not only is it, you know, gonna taste good, but it sounds good. So, I mean, that's, a, that's key to all of this too, is marketing to our students in a way that will appeal to them. Yes, marketing is, is so important. Um, you know, when we think about like, okay, you're serving a kale salad to students. That maybe doesn't sound particularly exciting, but <laughs> if you come up with a really cool, interesting name, like I guarantee kids are going to want to try something that has, I don't know, the word lava in it or, <laughs> or rainbow or like something cool. Um, you, you bring up such a great point. It's definitely something we think about with farm to school. It's like, how do we help schools do that marketing when, you know, 
school cafeterias are, are busy enough just trying to do all the cooking, but like how, how can we help with marketing? And so that's one of the things that for our, the farm to school program will be doing is having these marketing materials and flashy colors and all that stuff to help get kids excited to want to try something. You know, Kate is so right. Um, the key to marketing is to know your audience. One of my kids' favorite meals is macaroni and cheese with chicken nuggets. Uh, but the way I make it, <laughs> the nuggets aren't real chicken, and the cheese sauce for the pasta is actually cauliflower-based. Sometimes the trick is to just not mention it at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So, you know, you're a magician now? I, I want to know your secrets. <laughs> no, that's that's a great point, though. I mean, being creative and making it something new and, and flashy is, is probably the best term that she could have used. If you can bring something creative and exciting out of food, then it will keep their interest and pique their interest. And, you know, maybe they'll want to figure out how to make it themselves, you know? great. I love it. So, so far we've covered a lot of challenges that are more behavioral, like the way people think about food, whether it's nutritionally or um, what it would take to change our menu offerings in schools. Um, And so some of these are challenges at the individual or organizational level. Um, But I really wanted to hear from Kate and Jody about the barriers that they see existing and affecting schools at the regional, state, or federal level. You know, I think one thing for farm to school is school districts that participate in federal school meal programs have to follow uh, federal purchasing guidelines on on how they source their food. And the guidelines are certainly set up to allow schools to purchase local. But I think that um, sometimes they it, it can come across as a perceived barrier or school districts don't quite know how to interpret it or um, you know, understand what language they need to use in, you know, request for proposals or solicitations that they put out. And so I think just breaking down some of those barriers to help schools feel empowered and confident in, in how they're sourcing local is, is really important. Similarly, I think, um, you know, just as an example, you know, yes, you, you can buy a beef from a local farmer, but you know what's the process for doing for doing that in terms of working with a local butcher or something? Um, and similarly for vegetables, right? Like, what are the requirements in terms of the farm having you know a GAP certification, or um, what are the food safety requirements? You know, food safety is a really big concern for a school district, of course, when they're buying food, and when they're working with local farms, they want to make sure they're doing it right. But you know. There are great ways to do that in a way that can guarantee your food will be safe. And so it's just, I think it's kind of breaking down some of those perceived barriers and and helping schools understand what they need to know and ask for and document. I think the USDA Foods Program, um, you know, it's, it was created to stabilize the American farm economy by purchasing surplus commodities to offer schools, public schools um, at a low cost. So we're seeing menus that rely on carbon intensive ultra processed foods um, like deli meats, deli meats and chicken nuggets that are, that come from like the largest industrial meat and dairy corporations. Um, and those are not going to be your, you know, the, the farm to school um, types, that's factory farming. And um, 
that is what our government supports generally. And um, that is obviously not aligned with um, kind of the plant rich diet um, or what we're what we're evangelizing here. So that's a big one. And, and you know, they it's, it's created in a way that though that food is so cheap that, you know, as a school nutrition professional, you have such a limited budget and you have um, so few resources that you kind of need it. I mean, it's my understanding is you you need that food often to be able to meet your budget. Um, so everyone that's in school food is well intentioned, and they they they're doing this job because they care about food and they care about our children. But often their hands are just tied because of budgetary constraints. We're asking them to do a really impossible job um, with so little, little, little money. So, you know, there's a there's been a new policy that I, I was just talking to some students with um, last week because um, it involves Billie Eilish. She's a spokesperson for this proposed legislation called the Healthy Future Kids and Earth Act. Um, and they seek to divert, I'm reading something here, so it's going to sound a little robotic. Um, they seek to divert funding to plant-based foods and beverages uh, for kids. And it's, it would be a voluntary grant program for districts um, to provide healthier, climate-friendly, and culturally appropriate plant-based entree options to students. Um, so it's just taking some of those commodity dollars and creating them, putting them into some grants so schools can have the option and the choice to offer some of this and not have to feel a financial constraint or making a choice that they're going to do something different. And that bill is, is up right now. But that's like one policy that is an obstacle, but um, some a solution that is being tracked right now. I just want to reiterate here: the bill that Jody is talking about is HR forty one oh eight, the Healthy Future Students and Earth Pilot Program Act of twenty twenty one. Kind of a mouthful. Uh, it was introduced by Representative Velasquez and Representative Bowman, both of whom are from New York. Um, and if passed, this bill would create a voluntary grant program for school districts to help schools provide plant-based entree options to, to students. Um, and we can put a link in our episode description for listeners who want to learn more about that bill. Yeah, definitely. And I had just heard about that bill, I think through social media before I had talked with Jody and Kate. Um, and it's a bill like that at the federal level is seems like such an easy win and a common sense solution because it's creating small pilot programs um, that schools who really want to do this can take advantage of um, to see how well it works and maybe overcome some, kind of some of the early hurdles to make it easier for more schools to adopt um, or just try it out if, if they're interested in um, being a little more experimental. So I think it's amazing that there's already traction at the federal level for more grants and programs like that. And of course, the, the National Farm to School Network um, helps facilitate lots of other grants for schools across the country to adopt these things. And also even in Minnesota, I think there have been bills in the past and maybe ongoing bills um, to provide more grant funding for the state that probably helps schools um, cut the edge off from some of the funding barriers or cap capacity barriers. Um, so I'm, uh, that was really cool that you brought that one up at the federal level. Okay, we're getting towards the end here. We've come to the portion of our show where we ask our guests, how can we help? What can our listeners do to support your work? So let's hear from Kate and Jody. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, 
again, you know, farm to school is happening at, at each district on their own, but I think it, it's a great place for an interested community member or a parent to, to reach out, to just reach out to your school district, um, your food service director or someone else, see if farm to school is going on, see if they have a school garden and do they need help getting it planted for the year or, you know, a donation of tools or something like that, or do they do taste tests in the lunchroom um, with farm to school foods and do they need volunteers ever? Just find out if there's a way that you can help. And then I think, you know, a gr another great way to help farm to school kind of tangentially is, you know, for all of us as individuals to, to support Minnesota farmers, right? Support our local and regional farms, shop at a farmer's market, buy local. And, you know, the more that all of, we all of us support our food system, that will also help farm to school programs. Yeah. And what is a good way for people to stay up to date with the program? Would you recommend, is there a state level newsletter or I know one I've subscribed to the whole carrot and follow Minneapolis's progress there, but um, which one would you yep. most recommend? Yeah. So a lot of districts um, you mentioned Minneapolis is the whole carrot newsletter. You can follow a lot of districts, um, individual newsletters to see what farm to school is looking like, you know, in their district. There's also a, a Minnesota Farm to School newsletter that you can subscribe to if you if you just um, go online and search for like Farm to School Minnesota, it'll take you to the University of Minnesota Extensions page, and you can subscribe for to the Minnesota Farm to School newsletter, and that is you know kind of a, a collection of information and updates about Farm to School happening across the state. Well, I think the one thing is if you're a parent or you are interested in schools and our kids nutrition, I know I'm starting to do this is volunteering in your school lunchroom. Um, right now, they are so understaffed that they are actually employing students over the lunch hour, they're paying them for an hour of work to serve food to their fellow students. Um, and it might be just 20 minutes, but they are so understaffed and they really, really need our help. So I would say like, that's just supporting your school community. Um, and if you have the time and the means to be able to do that, I would really recommend. And then you can actually see kind of the ongoings and, and what is happening actually in your local school, what kind of food is being served and where you might be able to, to kind of fit into the, um, the network. Um, in terms of helping me and my program, if you're curious about plant-based at all and um, don't really know where to start, um, I would suggest checking out the website Explore Veg. That is the Compassionate Action for Animals website. And that kind of will give you a, um, some in-depth kind of understanding of some of the things that are going on in town in terms of community building, volunteer efforts, um, events that are going on. And that's an organization really where me, they kind of meet people where they're at. So you do not have to be plant-based to go to one of their events or anything like that. It's just to give you the opportunity to explore. And then in terms of Wholesome Minnesota, I would um, really love help and support in reaching out to um, administration and school nutrition professionals and let them know that you're interested in having a plant-based menu option in your school. Most schools don't have one. They just don't. And the, the nutrition professionals that I've talked to when they talk about the vegetarian options, they almost kind of like laugh at it because it's like, but the cheese thing that's covered in cheese and with more cheese and how we're just creating these vegetarian options that are really not healthy either because it's so full of saturated fat. So really just getting the word out and just asking for those options. Um, they People can contact me um, at 
jody.gruen at exploreveg.org. And um, I can get them set up with the name of the person in their school district or of whatever district they might want to chat with. Um, I can give resources, you know, whatever. I'm also, I'm very happy to come out and do presentations for PTO groups, groups of parents, um, green teams, schools, whatever. I'm uh, very, very happy to, to share this message. It's what I evangelize and um, what I'm really, really passionate about. So thank you too so much for um, joining today's recording session and sharing about your work. And thank you for all of the work you do to improve our food system. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So just to reiterate those two websites, uh, Kate mentioned extension.umn.edu and then search for farm to school. And Jody mentioned exploreveg.org. And we'll include those links in our episode description. Erin and Lisa, how else can our listeners get involved? Thank you, Sarah. Uh, I will echo what Kate said and support local farmers and producers at your local farmers markets. Uh, add volunteer locally at your local community gardens or in your school garden. A lot of schools have gardens now. That's a great list already. Um, but one thing that really inspired this episode um, is that our Plant Rich Diets group um, has kicked off our default veg campaign. So if you love the work that Jody does and you are related somehow to maybe a university and department, a K-12 school, or even a workplace that serves food, um, the, our default veg campaign is for you. So we would love to connect with you um, learn about what institution you're connected to, and then um, help change the food norms wherever you are. Um, so we've got a pledge link if you want to learn more, if you're super excited to take action and shift the food norms wherever you are, um, and we'll include the pledge link um, in the show notes, as well as we've been promoting this pledge link across MN350's social media. So if you follow us, I'm sure you'll see it there too. All right. That's our show for today. Lisa and Aaron, thank you so much for sharing this conversation with us. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks. I was so excited to cover this topic and I loved our discussion and what um, Kate and Jody shared and of course the work that they do. And thank you especially to Kate Siebold and Jody Gruen for sitting down and doing this interview and sharing some of the exciting work they're doing around schools, local sourcing, and plant-rich diets. For everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Nourish by MN350 is a production of MN350's Food Systems Team. We are changing the way people think about food production, distribution, and consumption practices in the context of rapid climate change. This series is made possible by the hard work and passion of a group of dedicated volunteers. Our producer for this episode is Lisa Chu. This episode was written by Lisa Chu, Pat Peshman, Aaron Drayling, and Kimberly Colgan. And our audio editor is Dan Jaquette. Our logo was designed by Fizz Design Collective, and our music is by Ecuador Mata. You can learn more at mn350action.org slash podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to our show today and you would like to support the work of MN350's podcast team, visit the support this show link at the bottom of this episode's description, wherever you listen. 
We are volunteers, but your donation helps ensure that we can continue to bring you the stories of the leaders working at the intersection of food and climate justice. Thanks for listening.